Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hello, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 74 of the Lawyerist podcast, where we talk with our friend Eric Cooperstein about how to stay out of hot water with the ethics board. Today's podcast is sponsored by Abacus Private Cloud. Future-proof your firm by going virtual. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com slash lawyerist. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Zero Beautiful Legal Accounting Simplified. Find out more at zero.com. That's X-E-R-O dot com. If you enjoy our show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. Today, I wanted to talk about this really cool, um, it's, it's billed as an art project, but I don't think that's probably right. Um, but uh, there is an artist named um, Paolo Sirio who took a look at all of these mugshot websites. And the problem with mugshot websites is that just because you get a mugshot doesn't mean you're a criminal or that you even did anything wrong. Uh, and lots of these websites charge people to take down their mugshots. So it's a little bit extortionate feeling. It's very extortiony. Yeah, it is. Um, it's it's not quite as skeezy as the, um, you know, sort of the encouraging people to post nude pictures of their significant others and then charging to take those down. That's uh, an additional layer of skeeziness, but this is pretty bad. And um, so uh, this was a very creative approach to doing this. He um, is cloning some of those mugshot websites. And when you arrive at a mugshot, um, which uh, it won't be the actual picture of the person, uh, he's scrambling up the names and blurring out all the images and then really focusing on trying to beat the mugshot, mugshot websites on his search engine optimization so that you're more likely to find his website than the other ones. And he's basically burying the mugshot websites is the idea. And so there's like this art factor to the project in the ways he's blurring the photos and mixing things up but basically it's seo art it's yeah it's it's basically taking advantage of seo to um destroy the effectiveness of mugshot websites because the, the entire thing works because you're applying for a job and somebody googles your name and you they find a mugshot and so if instead they find a website that is just garbage, then maybe they draw a different conclusion, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there, so a few holes in this. A, it's not clear to me that this single artist is actually going to be more of an SEO expert than these for-profit companies that n now, because of their success, have lots of money to invest just in SEO. Right. And if his works and you Google someone's name and it comes up with a random scrambled picture it does imply that they have a mugshot and then you just go one link lower because though he might be able to outrank the mugshot sites, he's not going to be able to delete them. Right. And therefore, then you'll say, oh, this person has a mugshot. This is just the art version of it. Yep. And you just click to the next page and find the actual DWI photo. I mean, I think there are ways around the um, concluding that somebody actually has a mugshot. You can, you know, just bring in a whole bunch of random information, names, scrambled names, but it's still a pretty strong possibility if you're searching for a real person and you land on his fake mudshot website. Um, 
but I, it, you know, pushing down the results is, is a valid thing, but you're right. It's probably only one result down. So it's, uh, it's hard to tell if this is actually going to be very effective or not. But it's cute. It's fun to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, and I think it's a neat, creative way to try and solve a problem. I mean, if if more people created mirrors like this, if he, if he's made it easy for other people to throw them up there, then eventually it might make mugshot websites totally worthless because there's essentially been out spammed, which is a cool, whole cool approach to it. So yeah, but their I mean, their whole business model isn't about whether or not they can be beat. It's that. They've made it, right? Like my, I don't have any mug shots, but if I did, my LinkedIn profile would still outrank that. And my, mm-hmm. my lawyerist profile would still outrank that, but it would be findable for someone looking. Yeah. And pushing it down doesn't really solve that. No, you're probably right. It's probably not a, it's probably not an actual solution, but it's, uh, it's a neat try. It's a neat project. I'll give them that. Uh, and I guess what I like about it is that it demonstrates a different way to think about solving the problem. And maybe it doesn't work, but at least it's not just complaining. So it reminds me of those sites. It, I guess it happened more in like previous presidential elections where someone would create a like George Bush sucks yeah. website and then get it to rank for George Bush. Yeah. Or George Bush forgot to buy George W. Bush dot right. com, I think. So. <laughs> well, there, there are things like that, too. <laughs> Um, but it, but it also is a good reminder of how important it is to own your own profile online so that, um, even if you do wind up with a mugshot there, there, it shouldn't be hard to get 10 links above it on the search engine results, you know, claiming your profiles, um, building your own website or having your own blog somewhere. Um, it shouldn't be that hard to outrank everything else. Agreed. And on that note, let's go and talk to Eric Cooperstein about how to stay out of ethical hot water. Hello everyone, I'm Eric Cooperstein. I have a solo practice in Minneapolis devoted to representing lawyers. All of my clients are lawyers and the majority of the work I do is representing lawyers in ethics complaints, defending ethics complaints and advising lawyers on other ethics questions they have, doing expert work and helping lawyers leave or join law firms. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but our about page says this, but you are the very first writer besides me for lawyerist. Is that really true? I don't know if you remember, but you and I sat um, and had lunch at um, somewhere up in St. Anthony in Minneapolis. And I pitched you on writing to lawyerist. And of course, I wasn't, wasn't even able to pay you at that point. And I think it took it about six or nine months for you to finally think, yeah, I might want to do that. And then you did. And um, and you were the, the absolute first writer for lawyerist besides me. Well, that, that is a distinction that I think I should get on my website. <laughs> you, well, you might want to. Because <laughs> I might not be a continuing writer for lawyerist, but at least I was one of the first. Your, your, your contributions remain some of our best. <laughs> well, thank you. So, um, and, and actually, uh, another sort of piece of trivia that I, it took me a while to realize, um, you started your solo practice with a lot more experience uh, underneath your belt, but you and I actually went solo at about the same time. Which would have been, what, 2007? Well, I guess Late I... Late 2006, early 2007 is when I started. Well, I guess I was uh, about a year ahead of you then. Yeah, well, and what, what was interesting for me was that I had experience in the practice of law. I had been, I had been out of law school for uh, 15 15 years mm-hmm. when I started my practice, but I did not have any clients. I had, I had not worked in private practice for 10 years when I started my solo practice. And I had no, I had no real base, no, <laughs> nobody who I knew was going to hire me when I started. 
so it really was I really was starting from scratch. Well, and it was interesting talking talking with you about this and and uh, other people I knew who'd started practices. Um, I've sort of formed this theory about um, the difference starting a law practice when you have ten or fifteen or even five years of experience versus doing it when you have anywhere from zero to five. It's it's a very different thing. You you had a reputation in the community that probably made it easier for you to get things going and stuff, and and you also didn't have the stress of um, trying to figure out what how to practice law on top of the business piece um, made it maybe a little easier. Um, I think that's somewhat true. I think you know there are two ways really. I think to start a law practice, one is to have a niche. That's a good way to start, and the other one is is, is just to know a lot of people mm-hmm. in general. I didn't grow up here. I moved here to go to, to go to law school in 1987, and so I had been here a long time. But I don't have those kind of deep roots that go back to high school and college of people who are living here. But I did have a niche that I could exploit because I previously worked for our state uh, lawyer discipline agency. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what I was, what, that's what I was going after. And a little, you know, I did a little informal market analysis in my head and talked to a lot of people, but you're right. It's the experience in practicing that kind of allowed me to get started. And you must be right at about what, 11, 12 years in now, right? I, I would uh, do the math real quick, even though you said it a minute ago. Yeah, your math is off. It's nine years. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. It's just over nine years, but that, that's the longest job I've ever had. Wow. Well, congratulations for making it this far. Thank you. <laughs> so, so I asked you to talk, come on today to talk about um, avoiding ethics hot water. I feel like uh, we talk about ethics uh, primarily now in the context of technology on Lawyerist. Um, we talk a lot about, though, um, we sometimes talk about ethical problems uh, and we sometimes give tips, you know, about like how to fix this thing or how to avoid this thing. But, um, but with you, I wanted to talk about just sort of generally how to approach law practice in, in a way that we, is likely to keep you out of ethical hot water. Right. Well, intentionality really would be the first step. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think, you know, I think a lot of lawyers get so tied up in just, um, you know, getting through the next deadline and trying to find clients and trying to balance the checkbook that, uh, it's hard to really, uh, or or at least the, it doesn't come to mind to try and really bake ethical practice into the way you practice law because there's so much other stuff going on day to day. It is surprising sometimes how um, lawyers starting new practices, particularly newer lawyers, but also uh, more experienced lawyers going into practice for the first time, will get so wrapped up in. They'll get, for example, you, you I think you'll be sympathetic to this, Sam. You know, they get wrapped up in the idea. Oh, I have to have a logo. Mm-hmm. but they really haven't figured out how to run their trust account. Right. You know, they know that's something that's out there, but they don't, they pay much more attention to the things that are not as important and less attention to, to the things that are really important. Yeah. Well, cause the audience for the logo is a lot bigger than the audience for the ethical stuff, but um, the ethical audience actually matters a lot more. <laughs> well, that's right. And it is, you know, I mean, it, practice is all about getting clients. So you can't overlook the fact that you have no practice without clients. Right. But you, but but having a structure, having put some thought, you know, the intentionality piece, having put some thought into what is this all going to look like, is is important as well. So you gave me about three th- things that you wanted to highlight. Um, maybe we should uh, give people the roadmap here, uh, and then sort of to walk through those things. So uh, tell me what they are. Oh, so the three kind of categories I came up with for staying out of trouble. They're not technical categories. They're more. Um, you know, thoughtful category. So one is, is the topic of, of how you manage clients in general. Um, the second is how you are in connection with other lawyers um, and how isolated you are. And the third would be 
how organized and embracing of technology a lawyer okay. a lawyer is. Well, those sound interesting. So let's tackle the first. When when you say like managing clients, what do you mean? Well, I find that a lot of my clients, um, you know, and I think back. So I so I, I've been doing. Well, this let's reiterate: now. your clients are people who have landed in ethical hot water. Yes, that's right. So Michael, when I say my clients, I'm talking about lawyers, right? And and they might not be in big hot water. I mean, you know, probably the bulk of my ethics defense caseloads are folks who've made some small mistake. They're getting accused of something by um, a, a, a rotten client who nobody should have represented in the first place. <laughs> right. You know, but nevertheless, they have a lot of anxiety over it. And they may have made some mistakes along the way that will get them in uh, some amount of trouble. But so I, I'm trying, as I think of these topics, I'm trying to look back over, you know, I get about... 30 to, I probably have 30 to 40 open discipline files at any one point in time. Hmm. And um, I'm thinking about people who, they seem to be like afraid of their clients in hmm. some respects. So they'll get, for example, a really demanding client, someone who makes unreasonable demands on them, and they don't seem to know how to manage these folks and how to draw lines over what you're going to let the client, how you're going to let the client talk to you and how you're just going to manage the client's expectations of, of the case as it goes forward. So it seems, because I, I think I've, I when you were saying that, I think I was recognizing the sort of binary nature of most lawyers-client relationships. They are either um, some somewhere in the neighborhood of dismissing or overbearing of their clients. Um, you've come to me and you're going to take what I give you and you're going to like it. Um, or they just bend over backwards to try and make their clients happy. They'll they'll push off as many bills as they they are able to. They'll um, they'll bow to all their clients' demands, and maybe they're telling themselves, "Well, hey, it's more more hours to bill." But um, but you're saying maybe uh, actually manage your clients. Don't just either boss them around or do whatever they say. Right. I think you know you, that was a very that was a very good um, kind of comment, Sam. Because the first group you managed, you mentioned the people who are uh, bossy or they're like kind of take or leave it. They don't care about the clients. Um, they get in trouble, but there's nothing I can do with them. Right. <laughs> I mean, people who who cannot do interpersonal relationships, um, and you know, I mean, nobody tells you this when you go to law school, but you actually have to be able to talk to people to be a lawyer. Right. And you have to be able to work with people, and you have to be able to both bring them in and listen, do all those things. Right. It is, but after a all, a service people, profession. That's right. That's yeah. right. It is a service profession, after all. So a lot of people can't do that, and you can coach them a little bit about it, and they can do anger management training, I guess, or something like that. But I can't do much with them. It's the other group you mentioned that um, I'm kind of more raising up here. It's the folks mm-hmm. who bend over backwards to help a client. They feel very, very sympathetic. So many of my clients, and this is probably a, a big thing, so many of my clients get in trouble from deciding to help somebody who had a pathetic story and where the lawyer could have figured out right at the first moment that this person was just on hard luck and nothing could be done for them. Yeah. And they are the most ungrateful people in this universe. (laughs) (laughs) And and when they don't get what they want, they blame their lawyer. Yeah. I think we've all had entitled clients. Right. (laughs) Well, it's not so much the the entitlement of the client, it's the lawyer's sympathy. I mean, it's oftentimes people are trying, you know, I'm going to help you. I'm going to fix your problem. I'm only, in fact, not only going to fix your problem, I'm only going to charge you a hundred bucks an hour. Right. You know, and then the client complains about the fee. So you're basically, you're, you're, you're promising to help them either get a solution that you know you can't get or 
um, that you can't get for what you've agreed to represent them for. And you're not really being proactive about managing expectations, which I think is where some of this goes. And Right. And then when you come to the realization that, in fact, there's nothing to do with them, um, you are so the lawyer is so reluctant mm-hmm. to break this news to the client that they stop communicating with them. Yeah. You know, I've noticed that lawyers are shy about um, asking for money, um, asking mm-hmm. for the full fee, um, communicating bad news. Uh, and kind of there, there isn't a whole lot of room for shyness in law practice when it comes to those sorts of things. You just kind of have to be frank about them. You can soften the blow, but you just kind of have to do those things. Yes, and fees actually was on my list too. Not charging enough money up front, not char- no, you're not making the clients pay you. You know, there was you know Jay Foonberg was the original guru of how to run a solo law practice and published a book with the ABA. And his book, I think, was kind of you know, the, uh, I guess you might call it the Bible of running a solo practice for, for mm-hmm. years. Yeah. And one of the things I remember, because when I started as an associate at a law firm back in 1990, someone, you know, a partner handed me his book and said, read this. And one of the things he said that I never forget is, put a picture on your desk of something that's important to you. Hmm. It could be your partner, you know, your spouse, it could be your kids, it could be your mother, it could be your boat, <laughs> whatever it is, that's important to you, put it on your desk. And every time you have a conversation with a client about fees, look at the picture. <laughs> because you need to keep your priorities straight and you need to bring in the money. You know, I, I adopted early on a very draconian stance when it came to fees um, because nothing made me feel worse. My very first client stiffed, my, stiffed me on my fee hmm. and nothing made me feel worse than the amount of work I had put in and I put in a ton of work because this was something I, I I had a mentor, but I didn't have a lot of experience. It was a restraining order issue and, and I was going to defend somebody for it. I put in a ton of preparation. They had agreed to pay me $750. I think I got the first $225 and they never paid me any more for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I felt just like such a jerk about that. And I kept that. I didn't keep something I cared about um, so much as I kept that check that I could never deposit. You kept that grudge. I did. I left it. it, I left it it. in my checkbook, and I put it in my in the drawer with my checks later on. And um, and I only I only ever got soft one other time. And you know the deal is, you pay me, and I represent you. And if you Mm -hmm. stop paying me, you're telling me that it's not worth having me on your side anymore. And I don't care what kind of a sob story you tell, but that's the deal. So yeah, I, I you know I rarely have a lawyer client who gets complained against by a good client. Mm-hmm. It, it's very rare that I, that I see a complaint and I go, oh, look at this complainant. Look how, my, look how the lawyer screwed them. Look what a terrible thing the lawyer did to them. <laughs> this was the perfect client. Similarly, you know, lawyers would have, would have knocked each other over trying to get to this client to represent them. No, that never happens. It's the clients <laughs> you shouldn't have taken. It, it's always the client. It's, it's so often, not maybe always, but so often it's the client that you, sh- you shouldn't have taken in the first place. So, I'm going to take two minutes from our sponsors, and when I come back, I want to talk about the issue of avoiding isolation. Did you know that law firms are the seventh highest target for cyber criminals? Breaches in security could cost you your clients, your reputation, and ultimately your firm. Protect your firm from cyber attacks with Abacus Private Cloud, the compliance-ready, fully managed desktop-as-a-service, engineered to safeguard your firm against cyber threats. Abacus Private Cloud is brought to you by Abacus Data Systems, a leading provider of business technology products and solutions, including Abacus Law, simplifying your practice management since 1983. 
Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com slash lawyerist. Billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice. Problem is, you still have to bill those hours. Even if your law firm has an accountant, tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for. And writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Zero. Get a free trial at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Beautiful accounting software. And we're back. So, Eric, you said avoiding isolation, and that's not an intuitively connected thing to me. So, why don't you lay that out for us? What are you talking about? Yeah, so I mean this on a couple of different levels, but it is a pattern I notice in a lot of my my clients. So, um, isolation can be just straight off, you have no friends. (laughs) You don't talk to people. You are in... I, very early on in my practice, I had a lawyer client who had purchased an office in kind of a little office uh, strip inside a subdivision. You know, mm. Sometimes when they build a subdivision, they'll have a bunch of offices at the early part. Yeah. And so there were no lawyers nearby. There were no lawyers nearby. There are no restaurants nearby. There's no place to go. There's no way to meet. There's no way you would run into anybody. Um, so there's just that pure kind of isolation where you're, you're, you're physically alone. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the isolation of not being in enough contact with other lawyers, even if you are off in some suburb, that you feel as though you can pick up the phone and call somebody when you have a, when you have a problem. So what happens is a lawyer gets something difficult that comes in. Someone's accusing them of doing something wrong, or they think maybe they screwed something up, or they think maybe the clients lied to them. It could be one of a hundred things. And their inclination is not to pick up the phone and call somebody to ask, you know, do you think I'm doing the right thing here? Mm-hmm. Because they have nobody to call. They don't know enough lawyers. Um, and that's something I learned very early on as I developed my practice. And it was, you know, <laughs> I mean, most people would not consider me to be a shy person. <laughs> but, but when I was starting my solo practice, I realized I needed to go out and meet with people and go out to lunch and have breakfast with people to, to figure out whether, first of all, this was a good idea and, you know, let people know I wanted, I was going to go out and practice and I was really, in some ways, scared to death. I thought, oh, I'm going to call these people up. They won't want to have lunch with me. You know, the whole thing. Yeah. And, of course, it wasn't true. And I learned very early on how supportive people would be and how willing they were to talk to me. Um, and then, after that, as I, as I really worked the practice, I realized not everybody does that. Right. And it's a big problem. I, get, I think big I get what you're saying problem for lawyers to get in trouble. And in, Randall and I have talked a lot about the need for a sounding board. Um, mm-hmm. And when he and I worked together, we were each other's sounding board, of course, um, which was easier because when you uh, when you walk into another lawyer's office or call him on the phone and you drop the the 15 second summary of your case on them, um, it's rare that you'll actually get high quality advice on the case. Um, but in talking with them about it, you'll very often get an idea of whether or not you're doing this totally wrong or not, or you'll some ideas might occur to you, um, and you're less I think you're less likely to screw things up at that point. That's right. And I think what you said is really exactly right, that in the process of just talking to somebody, of trying to explain the problem, you may organize it in your mind in such a way that you hadn't before. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. Or when you tell it to someone, they're going to look at you and go, and then they did what? <laughs> and so you can focus on this thing that's bizarre. And, and I'm not talking about ethics problems per se. Right. I'm talking just about things that come up in practice. So, like, I had a discipline case where the Supreme Court decided to make us try it again. (laughs) 
don't ask. But but they were going to try it again, and I wanted to figure out whether I could, you know, use things from the first trial. And I just didn't know the answer to that and did a little bit of research. There's no research out there that tells you that. So I called the litigator I know, who I know does lots and lots of cases because he's an insurance defense lawyer. Hmm. And so he litigates a lot of cases, and I just talked to him and just said, you know, Tom, can we... Can I, is it fair game? Can I just use it? Can I use evidence? Can I use information? And so it's those type of things where you're not sure where you're going to, and once you start doing it, I think you do it more and more often. I, you, I think it's, um, it's even, uh, that specific example you just gave is where you're not even sure what the question is going to, is supposed to be. That's right. Um, you're not even sure if you're asking the right questions yet. It's sort of like the beginning of legal research where you don't understand the problem well enough to figure out what the problem is. That's right. And, and sometimes I call it a reality check. So even in my practice, so sometimes in my practice when I have an ethics question about either my practice or something I've done, sometimes I'll go to some of the ethics folks in town who I know. We have, a, we have an informal, very, very, very a micro listserv mm-hmm. that we sometimes circulate questions on. But that's really for the, for the really technical questions. Um, sometimes I'll just go to somebody who's just opinion I trust and I'll call them up and I'll just say, you know, it's nice if you can walk down the hall. I happen to rent an office from a mid-sized law firm. So sometimes I can walk down the hall and just pop it in my head in somebody's office and ask, do you, you know, this is what opposing counsel is saying. Does this make any sense to you? Um, but sometimes I have to pick up the phone and do it. And it's even for an ethics question, I'll, I'll pick somebody who I think has good sense. And I'll just say, you know, does this sound right to you? I just want to get your impression of the way it sounds. And, if most people will do that on a hypothetical basis. They won't yeah. actually give up client names. When people call me to run a question by me, I always take names because the legal community is too small. And I've had too <laughs> many situations where someone calls me and they want to talk hypothetically, and then 15 minutes into the conversation, I realize, oh, wait a second. These, <laughs> I've heard these facts before. Where, where did I hear these facts before? And that's a terrible thinking feeling. Right. So I always take names and just create an attorney-client relationship and say, no, this is all privileged. Gotcha. But you can do it. You can do it anonymously too. There's actually an ABA formal opinion that talks about how you talk one lawyer to another, and you can do these things hypothetically, and you really? should be That's, fine. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go dig up that opinion and attach it to the show notes because I've heard a lot of variations on how lawyers talk to one another about their clients. And when um, we get done, I, I can send it to you. That'd be fantastic. We'll attach it to the show notes. Um, so I think I get that, and I, you know, I practice law in an office with other lawyers, um, even though they weren't in my firm. And that being able to walk into somebody's office and bounce something off of them was really valuable, in part because there are listservs and Facebook groups and LinkedIn channel groups and things and Slack channels now and stuff out there. But you're not going to find people who are willing to actually devote their time to your problem and really give their attention to your problem in a meaningful way. Um, it's when you actually have a personal connection with somebody that I think they're going to be more responsive and willing. And uh, and that makes a lot of sense to me that um, those personal relationships are probably going to trump the, the listservs and the, and the forums and things like that. Although those are certainly better than the alternative, which is just sitting in your office and not contacting anybody, I think. That's right. I, I think that, you know, if I have, there are very few reasons why I would ever give up being a solo. But one of the reasons I might ever take on a partner would be the ability not just to bounce things off somebody, but to bounce things off somebody who actually cares. Right. <laughs> someone, someone who has a stake, and also someone who you can come back to. There, there's this thing we all do where we call somebody for advice, but then we don't want to call them again the next week on a different yeah. case because we feel like we're abusing their time or you know, they'll charge us and we really are looking for free advice. Um, and the advantage of a partner is that person who's kind of in your orbit constantly. 
So if it's a settlement negotiation, they can remember maybe when you refresh their memory what the last offer or was. Or even an associate where you have your weekly, you know, case check-in and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Right. Although the associate is not a peer, you're going to be teaching. But again, there's that thing you said about organizing your thoughts to yeah. explain to somebody else, which is very helpful. Speaking of organization, you talked about embracing technology and getting organized. Um, and I was a little surprised about to hear technology in an ethics discussion. There's a lot of noise online about how um, technology always seems to be the end of ethics. So, well, as you well, you know, Sam, that I, <laughs> I have my, I have very I have very firm opinions on some things related to technology. And yes, the recent set of ABA model rule amendments left me fast asleep. Um, <laughs> so I don't I don't often I don't often lecture about it because I don't think it's very interesting, but. One thing I noticed amongst my clients is their lack of organization. Yeah. And it does connect to technology. And you may have heard me tell the story before, Sam, but, you know, I'll ask a client to send me a document by email and I'll get the document and I'll look at it. And the name of the document is Scan One. Right. <laughs> or it's Cooperstein One. And I have to, it always stops me in my tracks. I'm just like, well, how do you know what you sent me? If you didn't give it a name, <laughs> that would indicate to you what the heck it was, Yeah. right? So to me, that reflects a really, and, I, and this, this happens constantly. It happens with even big firm lawyers and their staffs. Nobody names stuff, and that's, but that's both organization and technology. It's part of being, I mean, it's kind of being careless with the tools that you use, right? Like, uh, you know, people always uh, fight the idea that you have an obligation to be technologically competent, which, okay, fine. So the alternative is that um, you don't have any responsibility to know how the technology in your office functions, even though you put tons of client information on it. That's clearly not right. So. (laughs) Well, yes, I I mean, I I agree with that. And, you know, there are some, and some lawyers who, who think that that's an excuse. I actually have had a client recently who, you know, keep saying to me, I said, well, how did this, how did this document get created? Well, I'm not, I'm not a technical person. I don't know technology. I can't tell you, you know, that's like, you know, the cop pulls you over for speeding. You say, well, your honor, I don't know how to read the speedometer. I don't know how to drive. (laughs) Right. I don't really know. You know, I got in the car, I pushed on the gas, it goes, I don't really have a sense of how fast I'm going. And the fact that there's this gauge here, well, I guess I'll use that next time. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, I don't think it's an excuse at all, but it is this, this concept and everything, there's nothing to be proud of in being a Luddite. Right. And, um, you know, it's when you send, I think it's hard, when you send me documents that say scan one, I can immediately see what your paper office looks like. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a mess. We're talking about it more because it's an indicator of your utter lack of, your probable utter lack of organization. So you probably don't even know when your deadlines are coming. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, um, and those are problems you should, you know, in this day and age, you should be able to lay your hands on a document on your computer, talking to your client on the phone within 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, and it's not, it's not, it's not hard. And again, it's, I think it goes back to what we started with in this conversation, this, int- this idea of intentionality. It, the practice shouldn't run you. You should run the practice. Yeah. And so, you know, things like being able to create a PDF, <laughs> Of a document. Knowing I've actually finally I've given up on sending my client draft documents in Word. I now lock track changes into the document before I send it to them. Hmm. Because I am so tired of my clients. And if you're out there listening to this, I mean you. <laughs> um, I am so tired of my clients. So I send a document to review 
And they either send me comments back in email, which is partially, but worse, the worst is they go into the document, instead of using track changes, they insert things and change the color of them, or they use the strikeout function for certain words and stuff. And so they manually do everything that track changes does, which then means that I have to retype everything when it comes back into my office. So I just protect the document for track changes, and then they have to use it. We, you know, we just did a, a post about how to properly redact PDFs because it turned out that um, lots of lawyers were just drawing black boxes over the words, which doesn't redact the PDF. Uh, even courts sometimes do this. And in the comments, I started getting all peop- all sorts of people. Um, uh, several people have uh, given me their novel ideas for how to properly redact PDFs in ways that do not redact PDFs in any meaningful way. Mm. Um, and so uh, it's not just... Uh, that lawyers don't know how to use technology sometimes in really important ways that can get you into hot water in federal or in state court, um, but they're obstinate about it. Right. Which is frustrating. So, and and like basic, basic stuff like being able to keep your deadlines somewhere doesn't even have to be a technological solution, although having your phone notify you, um, you know, 15 days before your memorandum is due is kind of a useful thing. So Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, actually, I'm one. So uh, for years, I mean, for the first eight and well, actually, for the first nine years of my practice, you know, I ran my practice off off of Microsoft Office. Mm -hmm. My invoice room were documents. I kept my bookkeeping was all done in Excel. And I've only just recently switched over to Clio Um, and which has been a good experience, not a perfect experience, but it's been a really good experience. And it's I think it's really going to work for me now. But you know, people, I think sometimes lawyers think that they have to buy really expensive software in order to be technologically competent, and I don't think that's the case. David Allen, uh, the author of Getting Things Done, has a great quote, which is, you have to pay a little bit more attention to this stuff than you do now, but not as much as you're worried that you might have to. Right. And you know what? You can look anything up in Wikipedia. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, there's just, there is, there's no excuse for missing a deadline that I can think of. Um, you know, well, their excuses are just not very good ones. <laughs> well, right. There's no excuse for just not knowing that the deadline was coming. I've met I've met a few lawyers, fortunately only a few, who actually keep track of deadlines in their heads, which is a terrible, terrible idea. Um, most lawyers keep track of them in other ways, and um, you know, using an old school file tickler is totally fine. Like that works. Um, but there's really just no excuse for not missing those things and that just requires just a little bit more organization than you might have now but not really all that much right and there's plenty of seminars it's really it's more about the intent to master mm-hmm. it it's not the, uh, i guess there are some folks typically that they're older although not always who just refuse to engage with technology and i don't I don't know that the future is very bright for those lawyers. <laughs> it's probably kind of short for them too. Um, <laughs> well, and 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 it it's harder to do things that are good lawyering things like checking in with your clients periodically. Um, that's the kind of thing that you uh, can really get assistance from technology with. And if your clients are happy because you've talked to them regularly, then they're a heck of a lot less likely to try decide that they want to make a complaint about you. Right. If you're good with technology, it should be easier. I agree with that. You should be. It should be easier for you to stay in contact with clients and so, give them an update and stuff. So, if you had to leave uh, some a, a last sort of exhortation to our listeners um, to stay out of hot water, I mean, what's your kind of the way you'd sum it up? What's the best way to stay out of trouble? 
Um, well, I think really, I, th- I think at the end of the day, it's really the thing about being connected to other lawyers. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that is a hub of of sorts um, with a lot of spokes coming out of it. Because if you're connected to other lawyers, you can solve the technology problem. You can talk to other lawyers about what they charge and how organized they are. You can talk to them about how do you collect fees. What are you doing lately? Are you suing clients? You know, do you use attorneys' liens? It all it really a lot of that revolves out of being connected to other lawyers. You don't have to get you know, you don't have to get business from every person that you connect with. There's other reasons for being connected to people besides getting business. I wish more lawyers understood that. More people understood that. <laughs> well, I'm on a mission, Sam. <laughs> that's, a really, that's a really good thing to close with. <laughs> I appreciate that. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. I enjoyed our conversation immensely. Yeah, my pleasure. make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. Subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.